I'm reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. I want to read verses 8 through 12. Yogi Berra has a way with words. He's the guy who said to one of his players one time, your future is ahead of you. Uh, (laughs) That's pretty profound. One time Yogi Berra got up to speak and he said, before I start talking, I want to say something. Now, before I start talking, I want to say something. About a month ago, I began to prepare for this day, for this service, really, in preparation. And I asked God to uh, help me to say something that has to do with the faith dimension, living in faith and walking in faith, to try to challenge you to um, new kinds of faith commitments. And he led me to this uh, thought. I took the outline and tried it out on my guys on Friday two weeks ago. Didn't make much of an impression on them, just to be honest with you, but that didn't discourage me. What, I'm, what I want to say before I start saying something is that um, I don't want you to turn me off if this sounds familiar, you know, the outline of this sermon. Verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself conceived, received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand by which, which is by the seashore. First time we find Abraham in the book of Genesis, he's living in Ur with his parents, with his father and the clan, the family. Now, Ur is not your typical Monday, Texas. It's not down in the boondocks. It's a cosmopolitan city. It is a focal point on the trade routes of the world, equivalent to London or or New York City. It is a bustling city of commerce, enjoying materialistic and intellectual cultures. And so Abraham grew up there in the midst of paganism, pagan religion, but not long after he went with his father up to Haran. And there the most formative event in his life occurred. 
Yahweh came to him, encountered him, and told him, he made him an incredible promise, really. He said, I'm going to give you a land to call your own. I'm going to make you, your descendants, as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. And I'm going to make your name resound throughout the ages. And in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The most incredible promise that ever came to a man, especially to a pagan man. And the words, the Lord will provide, those four words became foundational to the experience of Abraham and God. And without questioning, without discussion, this man obeyed and began that journey which never ended. He went down to Palestine and he moved to Egypt. And then he came back to Palestine and he roamed around in Palestine, living out of goatskin tents, living off the land and obeying God. Now that in broad generalities is, is the story of Abraham. But behind the canvas of this father of faith is a remarkable message, a tremendous lesson that seems to demand to be said today on this day. The first lesson is this, that God doesn't want us to stay where we are. Get up and move, he said to Abraham. Abraham is, is every man. Get up and move. If there is one word that describes the experience that this man had with God, it is the word movement. There is no nesting down with this deity. There is no settling in with this God. Get up and move. And so he did. God didn't give him something that he could cling to like an anchor which would remain steady in the storm. He gave him a call to change, a call to challenge. He called him to move. And Moltmann, the great German theologian, says that this is the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian religion, of biblical religion. All other religions, pagan religions, that he calls epiphany religions, it, are, are focused on this. They seek to establish some, some steadfastness in the midst of chaos. They, they seek to bring permanence in, in time and space. The exact opposite, he says, of the Exodus religion of Abraham. The symbol, he says, of the pagan epiphany religions is an anchor that's steadfast. But the symbol of the Christian religion, he said, is a hoisted sail, not a fair haven where the calm seas abide, but a struck tent and a cross. What is true then is true now. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that God is on the move in history. And those who love him are a part of that movement change. Christianity is change. If you signed on to Christ, you signed on to change. If you're a Christian, you're a part of change. You're in the process of becoming. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. creation. Old things have passed away and new things are coming to be. 
And now with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the image of God, we're changed into the same image from glory to glory. We're in the process of becoming. We're in the process of being changed. For God is the great change agent. And he's not, he's not satisfied with you just as you are. He wants to make you like his son. And so he brings all of these experiences of life into your life in order to move you from where you are to where he wants you. And what is right for an individual is right for the church. I think sometimes the church has the name of being conservative, linked to the unchanging past. Many churches, Frank Pollard says, are just wizards of was whose main purpose is to preserve the way we were. And there are a lot of forward-looking people, whoever they are, who are saying that the church is a, an outdated institution. It's a relic of a bygone age. It is hopelessly bound by the past, encrusted by the old traditions. Now, I don't know if we're as bad as they say we are, whoever they are but I know that the church is notoriously slow to change. If you don't believe that, you try to pastor one for about six months. And you try to bring into effect some kind of change. You try to lead the people from this security to that faith. You try to lead this people, any people, from the security of the past into the unknown future. You see how easy that is. The church should never get bogged down in the past. Christianity not only accepts but demands change as a part of God's purpose for the world. And if we don't want the radicals to change our world, we had better do it ourselves. We must never become like the people in Joshua's day, a part of something big, a part of a movement, God moving in history something that every generation since has called the most important event in history, the Exodus, and about the only contribution those people brought to that movement of God in history was that they stood around complaining about the cost, longing for the good old days. Now, I need to say three things about that change. People who move from Ur to Haran to Palestine to Egypt to Palestine and around are strange people. Folks who break from the past and step out into the dimension of faith are misunderstood. Pioneers are unexplained. Churches and people who live in the faith dimension are an enigma. They're considered strange. Men who build boats on dry land, who walk on water, who nail 95 theses on the doors of entrenched religion and challenge it to its core. These kind of men are unexplainable. They're weird, they're strange, they're peculiar. There's a certain peculiarity about living in the faith dimension, about believing that God will provide. Can you imagine how strange Abraham must have looked to his neighbors? I can picture his neighbor looking over the back fence, watching him load up his U-Haul. And, and the neighbor says to Abraham, well, Abe, where are you going? And Abraham says, well, I don't really know. 
Now that seems a little weird. The neighbor says, well, do you know what you're going to do, what you're looking for? And Abraham says, well, yes, I'm looking for this city that was constructed somewhere by Yahweh. Well, if you find this city, what are you going to do when you get there? And Abraham says, I'm going to start a whole new generation of folks. Now, that must have seemed pretty strange coming from a man who was beyond childbearing years. He was a strange man. I bet every lady here would like to have been married to Abraham. I heard about a lady who advertised in the classified ads, a single woman for a man. She got a deluge of responses, mostly from wives who said, take my husband. I think, I think if Sarah had responded to the classified ad, she would have said, take Abraham. I don't understand this man who will launch out in faith, just trusting God. And there's a certain, not only a peculiarity about change, there's a certain price to it. There's a certain risk to reach. Leonard Ravenhill says, there are no shortcuts up to high spiritual peaks and no ski lifts. I think what confronts us today is this question. It confronts us time and time again. Are you listening? The question that God has for me and for this church is this. Just how much and how far are you willing to trust me? There's so many fears Myriads of fears, and everyone has a name. Sometimes I think the name is worse than the fear. Agoraphobia is the fear of open space. Mountains and monuments, it might be the fear of high ideas and high dreams and high thoughts. There are some timid souls who avoid climbing up to high places because they're afraid. There are some timid souls who are afraid of high ideas and dreams and plans and thoughts because they're content with the low ones. The question this morning is this, how much and how far will we trust God? If he speaks to us, are we willing to do what he says, go where he leads? Somebody said to me, they said, you know, I, I, I asked God the other day what he wanted me to give to this challenge that you've talked about, and I didn't know, God didn't speak to me. My response to that was, does God know that you'll do what he tells you when he speaks? The amazing thing about Abraham was his obedience, and that obedience was there a long time before God ever spoke to him or ever even encountered him. We want God to speak to us, but we're afraid of what he'll say. We want God to lead us, but we want to tell him where we want to go. We want to walk with God, but we don't want to seem weird. The question is, how far, how much am I willing to trust him? There's a certain peculiarity in price. There's a certain promise about change. And the Lord will provide. When he took up Isaac up to that Mount Moriah, Isaac asked the question, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. I tell you, there's more security in that word than any fair haven. 
The real security is not in knowing that life will never have a demand upon me, no trouble. Real security rests in the words of Jesus, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. In other words, whatever you have to have, you'll have. God doesn't want us to stay where we are. Point number two. Now sometimes I get kind of frustrated. I, I preach out all my time on point one so I don't have time much for point two and three. I'll just brush them. Point number two, you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. God is perfectly willing to take you where you are to where he wants you to be. It is true that perfection by right ought to be at the end of the process. We, we put perfection at the end of the process that God has using us rather than at the beginning or even in the middle. Abraham was a great man of faith, but he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He wasn't complete. When God told him to go down to Palestine, he did. When he got down there, there was a drought came and he panicked. Here was this man of faith, the father of faith, who is moving out on the promise the Lord will provide. He got down to Palestine, a drought came and he panicked and his faith melted like a chunk of ice at a 4th of July picnic and he fled to Egypt. When he got there, something worse happened. His wife was beautiful and he was afraid perhaps that some Egyptian prince would want her and kill him in order together. So he told his wife, he said, if something like this happens, you tell him that I'm your brother. That is awful sweet. In order to save his own skin, he was willing to risk his own wife's virtue. Pretty self-serving thing for a man to do who was the father of, of the faithful, the friend of God, wouldn't you say? Not only was that a despicable act, but it brought dishonor to God and it gave occasion for sin. But the point is this, that you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. The good news is that God is willing to take you where you are and move you to where he wants you to be. The good news is that perfection is the goal toward which we strive and it is the norm by which we measure our progress, but it is not the prerequisite of God's using you and it can never really be embodied in this life. I wonder how many people would have been helped if the last verse of chapter five, Matthew's gospel, had been translated differently. You're familiar with the King James translation of the last verse of Matthew 5. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let me show you something. The Greek imperative, be ye, and the Greek future tense, you shall be, are spelled exactly alike. In the Greek, they're spelled exactly alike. The way it's translated is using the context. Wouldn't it have been amazing if that had been translated in the future tense like this? You shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect and put in, the, in, the, at the, in a place of a gracious promise. It might be that, that that would be closer to our understanding of biblical truth and it probably would have dispelled a lot of the notions that a lot of us have. And that is that you gotta be great for God to use. You gotta be perfect for God to take. You don't have to be that. It's not a prerequisite for his love. And that's the good news. 
There's one last thought, please, from the life of Abraham is this, that everything you have in your life, every particle of it is a gift. Everything you own, everything you have is a gift from God. The air you breathe, it's, hold, it's held in his hand. He says over there in Daniel, the God in whose hand thy breath is, thou hast not glorified. He holds it in his hand, gives it out a breath at a time. It's all God's. Now one day God told Abraham, he said, I want you to take Isaac, your son, up to that Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. I've always had a lot of problems with that. I was telling him in the early service, I, I had a notion that my father would have often liked to have killed me, but not for the same reason. And I, I remember as a boy reading that story and, and being intrigued by it. Abraham taking not only his only son up Mount Moriah and, and offering him as a sacrifice, but the son of the promise of God. I had a lot of problems with that. A German theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rod shed some marvelous light on that experience. He said that that what God is asking Abraham to do is not a digression into pagan religions. That's what they did in the pagan religion where Abraham grew up. It's not a digression into paganism. What he was doing, says Von Rod, is testing Abraham. Now we've always known that. He was testing Abraham. But Von Rod gives us a new perspective on the test. He's saying this. He's saying what he's doing is testing Abraham with regard to his possessions. For Abraham, for everything that Abraham had, God had given him. I mean, that promise that he made, those blessings that he brought into his life, that generation that he was going to number like the stars, he, he didn't deserve that. He didn't earn that. He'd come fresh out of paganism. It was a gracious gift. And what Von Rod said, what God is doing is testing Abraham to see if he still remembered that everything he had was God's. If he still remembered that all that he possessed was a gift of grace, or if he'd fallen into the notion, are you listening? Or if he'd fallen into the notion of thinking that there's some things that are mine and they are my right to preserve and to possess. Abraham passed the test. On Mount Moriah, what he was saying, if, if uh, Von Rod was right, was this, God, I understand that whatever I have in my hand, even my own children, belong to you and thereby right yours. John Claypool gives us an illustration of it. He said when he was a young man growing up, they didn't have a washing machine to do the laundry with. But one day his partner, his father's partner was drafted into the army. It was during World War II and he was drafted into the army. And so hurriedly they, they got ready to leave his Claypool's father's partner and his family and they asked the Claypools to they could store their furniture down their basement. They agreed. And, and they said, we've got this Bendix washing machine. You, you know those old Bendix washing machines. Say, we got this Bendix washing machine and, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's only right for you to use it while we're gone. And so they did. 
Claypool said his mother got sick and so it was his duty to do the washing, the laundry. He said, I got personally acquainted with that old Bendix washing machine. Bendix washing machine and me became big friends. He said, I'd stick my finger in those rollers, see how much pressure I could stand. You know, just had a big time washing, the, doing the laundry. One day he said, while I was at school, that man came home from the army. The war was over, came and got his furniture, got the Bendix washing machine. He said, I came home from school, went down to the basement to do the washing, said, holy cow, the washing machine's gone. Somebody stole the washing machine. And he said, my mother sat me down and taught me a lesson. She said, son, you've forgotten how that washing machine got out in that basement in the first place. Never was ours. It's just a gracious act of kindness that we've even had it to use for a while. It's not really, it was right for them to take it. He said, I learned that lesson, but I learned it. A little girl died. Now John Claypool had 11 year old. She had leukemia for about five years. I know John Claypool well. He's never gotten over the death of his daughter. She died a horrible death. They called Tracks of a Fellow Struggler, the five sermons he preached after her death. He died with her. And that Saturday, I went back home. I went down into the basement of my house that whatever we have, whether it's our children, food that sits on the table, whether it's the car we drive, the house we just ours to use belongs to him. My house and remembered what my mother taught me as a boy. That did as I had given up my daughter in death. But he said, I was able to, that whatever I have is really his. He possesses. It's his right. God doesn't want you to stay. He wants of this church. You know what he wants of me? He wants to teach us that we can walk on water. He wants to show us. He wants to teach us that. He wants to strike down and move beyond where we've ever been before. He wants to experience what it's never experienced before. He wants us to be something we've never we are. And he wants us to understand just as we are right now and go with us from here. We don't have God in His grace takes us right where we are and just moves us to that the only motivation that will ever enable us to do that. That will never, whatever God asks of us, if it's the next five minutes of our life or the next, I'll go to some foreign mission field. Yes, I'll bear witness every Monday night, whatever. Tell you this and then I'm through. And to every person in the community where I was pastor, it's a small community, about like Calais, I'm going to call in the decision that you've been wanting to make, you've been intending to make. Call in the decision. I call in the decision. From those of us who have never made that decision, stay with me. Father, I thank you for the great challenge of your. I thank you for the privilege of the things that I'm that there are some of us who are still hangers back church that will become that focal point, that line. And we know Lord that we'll not be there, we'll not come in every heart 
is my prayer in Jesus' name. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest it repent and turn to Jesus for your salvation. Trusting Him, you to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The way to know Him is trusting Him, is the step of obedience and commitment and trust. Somebody will have to come maybe to just lead out. Others will come.